Strange Stories UK here again, Series 5, Episode 4. Calling this one London Gangland, the unsolved murder of Jack Buggy, by, shot by Franny Daniels. Bit of a mouthful, I might have to uh, make that a bit smaller. Uh, word of warning, it's a bit of a ramble. There is some bad language when I read out some dialogue said by other people not by myself. I did a search on Jack Buggy. There doesn't appear to be any other podcasts on this subject. So on with the show. So as said, this podcast concerns a gangster called Scotch Jack or John James Jackie Buggy, who was shot in London during May 1967 in a gambling club in front of about 20 witnesses. His body was later found floating off the coast of East Sussex. The police met with a wall of silence from all those involved and the chief suspects all fled the country. Despite a thorough police investigation where they had their strong suspicions, they could not get enough evidence to charge those they thought responsible. It was a newspaper article in 1972 when a woman who knew of the story but was not present at the time, uh, sold a false story to the News of the World newspaper. And this opened the case again. This caused developments and this time there was a court case. So this is the story. Scott Jack, or John James Buggy, was born in New York on April the 6th, 1933. His parents were both British. The family moved back to the UK, to Glasgow in Scotland, in the same year, 1933, and then they got divorced. Buggy was brought up by his father, who was known as John the Yank Buggy, who was born in 1902. Buggy's father was described as a worthless character, and as a result, other relatives helped bring him up. It's not known what happened to his mother, Agnes, a maiden named Taylor, who was born in 1906. Buggy was in trouble with the police from an early age. He was sent to a proved school and had a number of jobs after he left school, including time spent in the USA Air Force, from which he deserted. Buggy married Babe Kimmons in about 1951, when he would have been aged about 18 years of age. This was in Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey. The marriage did not last. Buggy was a violent criminal and a bully. In February 1961, he received a nine-year sentence for GBH, that's grievous bodily harm, and he was released in December 1966. Buggy was known for his violence and quick temper. He was jailed for shooting the wrestler Ronald Reader following a backstage row at the Pigel Club which was a supper club in live music venue at Piccadilly Circus in London. Buggy and another man were refused permission to go to the dressing room of Shirley Bassey, who was appearing at the club. They wanted to take Shirley Bassey to a party at the West End, in a West End flat on the evening of the 24th of September 1960. 
It wasn't a great surprise to learn that her manager did not let them near the dressing room. Buggy hung around and an argument broke out with Rita. Buggy hit Rita with a plate and Rita said, outside. Buggy said, OK, but with tools. Rita told them that he did not need a tool, but he did not realise that Buggy had a gun. The bullet went through Rita without hitting any organs, so he survived, and Buggy got nine years inside. When Buggy was released from prison in 1966, he met with Anne Phillips. They met on Christmas Eve 1966 at the Old Crown Pub, Kingston. Hello Goodbye by the Beatles was number one in the pop charts, and Swinging London was the place to be. Anne Phillips was married with a child at the time, but she moved in with Buggy at 35 Ayagath Court in Sutton Common Road, Sutton, Surrey, within a week of meeting him. Anne said that regular visitors that called on Buggy were Pinky Lewis, Tommy Lincoln and Lenny Field. Mayfair, private gambling clubs that existed in the 1950s, favoured the card games Faro and Chemin de Fer. These were played for high stakes. The British aristocracy had many gambling addicts amongst their number, and Mayfair in central London was their playground. Although gambling was illegal at the time, the clubs would be tipped off by bent police if there was to be a police raid. There were lots of smaller bookmakers operating in these clubs. It was virtually unregulated. If backhanders were paid to the police in brown envelopes, any gambling was available. For criminal types, there was always opportunities to make money. It was said that the aristocracy liked the frisson of being around gangsters. It was John Aspinall who organised private house gambling parties, playing Chemin de Fer. This was a quick game that, that caused huge pots of money to be built up in gambling games. Aspinall realised there was a loophole in the law which allowed a host to charge 5% of a pot if gambling took place in a private, not a regular gambling place, then it was ignored by the law. Although it was a grey area, it allowed the toffs to do what they wanted. They could play without being interfered with by the law, it, as long as the law were being paid to look the other way. Aspinall made a fortune. Although his private gambling venues were possibly legal, he was still paying bent police just to smooth things through. But when he was late with a brown envelope one week, it was his mother's job to supply the bribes, she was lady something or another, a private party was raided in January 1958 and Aspinall was taken to court. Aspinall decided to plead not guilty and as he had bent police telling him the prosecution's tactics, he won the court case, which led to a gambling free-for-all. Gambling laws and gambling clubs were confused to say the least in the 1960s London and there was lots of corruption. Antiquated laws and statutes dating from the 17th and 18th centuries would not have made much sense. They were flouted even in the days they originated. As the police were no longer prosecuting gambling clubs since the failure of their case against Aspinall, it caused a huge increase in private gambling clubs and a huge increase in un unregulated gambling, which in turn led to the 1960 Betting and Gaming Act which allowed private members-only members gambling clubs. 
In the very posh Claremont Club, Billy Hill became in partnership with John Aspinall. The new gaming laws had outlawed his 5% service charge on pots and he was having to rely on membership fees which were causing him cash flow problems. Aspinall was a spendthrift and he didn't have the money he was used to coming in. Billy Hill, his new partner, organised it so packs of cards would be subtly marked and resealed for use in the Claremont Club. The marked cards were being used to fleece the British aristocracy of their fortunes. There were stories of people like Lord Derby and Bill Sterling, who was the founder of the SAS, losing their family fortunes virtually overnight. Tens of millions of pounds were being gambled away, possibly due to bent cards, marked cards and trained bent croupiers and bent players. Chemin de Fur was a quick game and huge pots built up. There were people playing the game that were planted for their ability to watch for the marked cards. There were perhaps up to three or four planted people in a game. The aristocrats did not stand a chance in these crooked games. There is a documentary film on YouTube called The Real Casino Royal that was made in 2006 by Channel Floor, which explains the whole scam. It's worth watching. The money would make its way back to the gangsters and Aspinall who organised it all. If this sort of thing was going on at the most famous gambling club at that time in the world, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think what was happening at other gambling clubs, taking advantage of those that choose, chose to gamble there. Billy Hill, who was said to be the godfather of the London underworld in 1960, was interested in all types of gambling and it was his example that encouraged others to open gambling clubs, as it seemed a licence to make money. Buggy had a share in a betting shop with Tommy Lincoln in London, which he would go to each day. Then he would go to the Elm Club at 145 Mount Street, London. Then other clubs nearby, including the Mount Street Club at 115 Mount Street. One can imagine people like Buggy visiting clubs probing for weak points to exploit. It was thought that Buggy had been employed by the Cray Gang to collect protection money for them from the gambling clubs. There was a spectrum of different types of clubs, from the clubs in the private residences scattered around the posher neighbourhoods of London, the Mayfair Club, such as the Claremont Club, in an area which has been called the Aristocrats uh, Playground. Then there were the seedy private members clubs that seemed to spring up everywhere in 1960s London where only registered members of or their guests could play. Small gambling clubs called Spielers, doing their best to pose as private members-only clubs, began springing up in old cinemas, restaurants, the back rooms of local pubs, and places like that. Sometimes it was just an anonymous door leading to a couple of rooms. Wherever a likely venue could be cheaply renovated, fast, an eager punter would sign the book at the door and immediately become a valued member in good standing. The situation remained in legal limbo for most of the 1960s, as various test cases slowly wound their way through the ponderous British legal system. Any gangster that took himself seriously and wanted to be a partner in a private members club, and he quite often had to pay off other gangsters looking for protection money. The Mount Street Bridge Club was on the first floor of 115 Mount Street, W1. 
Mount Street is in Mayfair. Winston Churchill used to live at 105 Mount Street before his death in 1965. Today it's a posh shopping area. It's a very expensive place to rent. I had a quick look what's available and it said office space today for rent in Mount Street is about £90 per square foot plus a service charge of about £10 per square foot and business rates of £25 per square foot. So rather more expensive than a bridge club could afford in 2022. As said, Mount Street Bridge Club was on the first floor of 115 Mount Street, which was a large front room used for horse racing, uh, betting, horse race betting and playing cards. There were a number of tables and chairs for playing cards and taking refreshments. There was also a desk with a person with two phones who would take bets on horse racing and the like. Morris Blundell would organise and lay off larger bets. A middle room with armchairs and a television and a third room with an attached kitchen where the clientele could have a meal. It was an elegant Georgian building. I've put a photograph on the Facebook site to give you an idea what the place looked like from the outside and the games room from the inside today. You would enter the club by mounting the stairs and going along a short passageway. The kitchen was straight ahead. A door on the left led to the dining room and a cloakroom. This is a place where you can make a private phone call. From this room on the left-hand side, there were steps up to the television room, which also had a public phone box. Through this room led to the main gambling room, the club room where there were tables and chairs and blackboards written with the names of horses and dogs and their starting prices. The club had wall nights and overhead lights over the gaming tables. The card games played were anything except bridge. 79 rummy, where you counted the points up to 79 and then you were out. Faro, Kaluki, Gin Rummy, Klobosh and Yosmaniel. The club was open from about 9am, sometimes it stayed open all night and it was open six days a week. During the morning, snacks, teas and coffees were available. Then there was lunch and then snacks in the afternoon. In the evening, dinners were available. Roast dinner and uh, steak were popular. Meals were served by Nellie, Betty and Nit Lauf. Betty was around 40 years of age. Nellie was much older. Dougie Wardle was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1926. He was a regular at the club and said that he was never charged an entrance fee or any membership for entry to the club. He knew most of the gamblers that were there. Uh, these included the Aga, Mori the Head, Bimbo Smith, the Swan, Brian Kemp Kempner, a man called Gillette, Alfie Haynes, Joe Baker, Pat Burns, Freddie Thompson, George Kidd Bartlett, Waggy Whitnell, Jack Buggy, Danny McElroy, Benny Hill Morris. He was the French chef at the Colony Club just down the road. And there were many others, Albert Dimes, Jack Martell and others. It was a popular club amongst a certain type of clientele who were happy to be in the Mayfair area. Dougie Wardell was a criminal. As said, Australian, he made his money through blackmail. 
He would dress up as a policeman and go to public male toilets pretending to be a police officer and arrest people. This was his business model and he claimed he made hundreds of thousands of pounds over the years in blackmail. Wardle first used his business model in Australia but decided that the United Kingdom would be a happy hunting ground and he came to the UK in 1962. He was first arrested in 1963 for blackmail but despite convictions he was so successful he kept his business model going and proved so lucrative. Dougie was popular at the club, a club where many criminal types relaxed with each other. Wardle first met Buggy in 1966 at the Mount Street Club. Buggy was finishing his sentence at an approved hostel after prison. Wardle and Buggy also both went to another club called Chenou in Inverness Street in Bayswater, which was run by Waggy Whitnell and Jack Buggy. They also used to drink at the Audley, at the corner of South Audley Street. Wardle said there was some trouble during 1966. There had been a bank raid across the road from the club. Wardle said there were rumours that club members had been responsible and Buggy and Whitnell, who had both been close and were taking bets at the club, they, st- they stopped coming in for a while. Wardle thought there was some disagreement over money they'd both, and that they'd both been involved in a bank robbery, but he didn't know for sure. It was just a, a rumour, although a strong rumour. Mount Street Bridge Club was known as a meeting place for criminals, Australian criminals in particular. The club was run by Francis Daniels, a.k.a. Franny Daniels. He was born in 1910 and lived at 88 Portland Place. He was assisted by his nephew, Charles Whitnell, or Waggy Whitnell, and Whitnell was once good friends with Buggy, but as said, they'd fallen out over money. Well, the details were unknown. Other people employed at the club were Abraham Lewis, who was born in 1909. He was a club secretary, and he was known as Little Elf. He basically uh, was responsible for the day-to-day running of the club. Morris Blundell, born in 1907, looked after the horse racing, and David Harris, born in 1928, was known as Punch, and he was basically Blundell's minder. Betty Lill was born in 1902. She was the the cook. Uh, What was it? 1912 she was born. And Eleanor Angel Nelly was the cleaner, who was considerably older. So Frank, or Franny Daniels, had a nickname, Franny the Spaniel. He'd been a criminal with uh, gangster connections all of his life. He was part of the gang organised by Jack Spot, who were involved in the Battle of Heathrow in 1948 when a gang tried to drug guards by putting barbitone in their pot of tea and steal gold bullion. It all went wrong, the police had been tipped off and Daniels claimed to have escaped by clinging to the underside of a police van travelling from Heathrow to Harlesden Police Station, a 12-mile journey. He intended to drop off at the first traffic lights but just seemed to hang on despite being scolded by the exhaust. He claimed to have scars on his shoulder all of his life when he scraped the road several times during his journey. Anyhow, the story was good for his reputation amongst his underworld colleagues. Daniels was good friends with Billy Hill 
and when Hill came out of prison, he switched to join the Hill Gang, along with many others that became part of London's gangland. Others in Hill's gang included Albert Dimes and Frank Fraser, Mad Frank as he was known, um, and they all had an interest in the private clubs in London. Daniels had avoided criminal convictions since about 1944, apart from gaming offences. Before 1944, he had convictions for shop-breaking and receiving stolen goods. I know we haven't yet talked about the shooting of Buggy, but I'd like to give a bit more background, which helps explain the situation. So six years after the shooting, when the case had been reopened on the 27th of April 1973, Tony Lederer, who was born in 1920, gave a statement to the police. He said that he lived on the second floor flat at 115 Mount Street in 1967. Ledra was now working at a Regency Club, Dorset Avenue, Northwest 1, where he managed to bridge gaming tables. This was in 73. Ledra said that until about 1960, in conjunction with his mother, he used to run a bridge club at 115 Mount Street. It was on the first floor. The club was known as Ledra's Bridge Club. During 1960, they sold the club to a Mr. Eddie Fletcher, who had a partner called Wally Furman. And since that time, although the lease was still in Lederer's name up until 1968, he had no connection with the club, and he insisted on, which he insisted changed the name to Mount Street Club. He didn't want the name Lederer's to be associated with the new owners. Lederer said that as far as he knew, it was Betty Lill that helped run the club, uh, she was the woman that helped Lederer's mother run the Lederer's Bridge Club before 1960. Abraham Lewis, Little Elf, was the club manager. Nellie was still the cleaner. She'd been with the club for a very long time. Lederer said that there was another man called Franny Daniels who was the overall boss. And there was a man called Blundell who ran the horse racing with two other men called Ash and Punch. Obviously nicknames. Ledra explained how the police contacted him on Thursday the 11th of May 1967 to tell him about an explosion at the club. He returned to the building to survey the damage and talked to a Mrs Tucker, that was Mrs Virginia Tucker, born 1909, who was the tenant of the third floor of 115 Mount Street. At the time of the explosion she was at home and heard what she took to be a pistol shot. It was she that discovered the radiator leaking water and was able to contact Mr Lederer at the Dorset Club. It seemed that Lederer was suspicious about the explosion as he said he smelt a strange smell like cordite as if an explosive charge had been detonated. Lederer said he would often call into the club for a cup of tea in the morning and after the explosion he went down there and spoke to Alf Lewis who claimed to know nothing at all about the explosion which seemed to have caused a fair amount of superficial damage. Later that morning, when he was in the flat, Lederer heard what he thought was a car backfiring, but he didn't pay any particular attention to it. He left his flat about 2 to 2.30 that afternoon, and he saw Fanny Daniels leaving at the same time. Alfie and Betty, who were still in the club, spoke to him to say that the club would be closed for a couple of days while it was cleaned up. 
Later he said he learnt that the explosion had not been accidental. It had some connection with a protection racket, which Lederer said was a common thing at that time in London clubland. During the conversation with Elfie, Lederer said that he was not keen to stay in the premises alone after the explosion. Elfie Lewis suggested him going away for a couple of days until it blew over. Elf said it would soon be started. Lederer said that Elf gave him £20 to go away for a couple of days. Since he returned, Lederer said that he had not seen Franny Daniels, Betty Lill or Morris Blundell or anyone else connected with the club, apart from Elf Lewis, who he saw a couple of times, who said that the club premises had been closed and the police had the keys. He said that the club would be opened at a future date, but it never was. Lederer said that he had to pay many thousands of pounds to one of the agreement stipulated in the lease due to being let down by Elfie Lewis, Franny Daniels and the others connected with the club. Lederer said that since the explosion he's not resided in his Mount Street flat and the whole incident has made him ill. The statement given by Lederer was taken at his house, April Cottage, Chalfront St Peter, Buckinghamshire, where Lederer was living in 1973. There was another club in the basement of 115 Mount Street. This wasn't a gambling club, this was the Pathfinders Club, which was open to all serving and ex-members of the RAF and Commonwealth and Allied Forces who visited London. Visitors became guest members and could use the club rooms. Their address being 115 Mount Street, Barclay Street, sorry, beg your pardon, Barclay Square, London W1. Going back to the 11th of May 1967, Alan Reynolds was a police officer who was on duty at the American Embassy, the anti-Vietnam demonstrations. He heard an explosion in the vicinity and went to investigate. When he got there, the fire brigade were dealing with the situation. They were believed that there were suspicious circumstances and a pungent smell at 105 Mount Street. This was when Lederer was uh, contacted at the Regency Club to come back to the building. The police thought that Lederer's premises may have been ransacked. They accompanied him to his rooms. During the examination, he said, I'm a naturally untidy individual, Sergeant. I had a party last night and haven't cleared up yet. There is nothing stolen. The explosion on the landing outside the Mount Street Club damaged a radiator and curtains. Water from the radiator was cascading down the stairs and this caused a lot of damage to carpets. The only people present at the club at the time were Blundlin Harris and it was they that called the emergency services. At first it was thought to have been a faulty radiator but it later was realised that the explosion was caused by gelignite. Blundell then went to the Victoria Sporting Club, also known as the Vic a casino used by criminals at Edgware Road. And Blundell told Philip Lewis, um, a.k.a. Pinky Lewis, born 1906, about the explosion, which at that time was thought to be the faulty rad. Lewis calls his friend and sometimes partner Buggy, and Buggy told him and uh, agreed to go to the club the next morning. Buggy was living with Anne Phillips, and Phillips told how on the 12th of May 1967, the day after the explosion, Buggy left for the club at about 10am 
and he arranged to meet Anne at Kingston at one o'clock in the afternoon. At 11.30 she phoned the club to say she was on her way to Kingston and she said that Buggy said he was about to leave the club. Buggy was never seen alive again. Anne alleges that she telephoned the bridge club at 3.30 and spoke to Harris who denied that he'd seen Buggy. Later Harris denied he was at the club at all that day although witnesses state that he was there. Anne phoned around trying to locate Buggy. She spoke to Tom Lincoln, born 1929, who was Buggy's partner in the betting business. Lincoln said that he had seen Buggy in the club when he briefly called in. He thought that must have been around noon. He said that there were six people in the club at the time. When police later questioned Lincoln, he remembered Buggy, Daniels and Wintnell all being at the club, but couldn't give the names of anybody else. It was thought the gangsters Albert Dimes was present and a couple of Australians. Lincoln had gone to the club with Pinky Lewis. They'd only stayed about ten minutes. When Buggy had been missing for a couple of days, Anne informed Buggy's aunt and Mrs Margaret Sirat, who reported him as a missing person. The police, knowing of Buggy, thought that he was staying away from his known haunts for some reason, known only to himself, so they weren't too concerned about him being missing, and nothing was done to trace him. A few days later, Whitnell phoned Anne, saying they'd seen Buggy leaving the club between noon and 12.30. Anne found this odd, as in her phone conversation with him at 11.30, he said he was about to leave. 18th of May 1967, the police raided the club as a result of information there had been a shooting at the club. The rumour was that so-called Glasgow hardman John James Buggy had been shot. The police came to investigate but found no signs of bullet holes or blood or anything to indicate a shooting. When the police arrived they were informed that Mr Daniels, Fanny Daniels, had gone on holiday and as everything seemed in order they took no further action. After the police had been to the club, custom dropped right off. A lot of the Australians that went to the club were criminals. There were a lot of shoplifters, or in Australia call them hoisters. They all made themselves scarce from the club, which may have been part of the reason that the club never really reopened. It was going to be easier to set up a new club elsewhere that did not have a reputation. Wall started to use the Astor Club in Mayfair, and that was a well-known haunt of both the aristocracy and London gangsters. And it was a club that was regularly used by the Cray Twins, the Cray Gang. About a week later, more rumours began to circulate, confirming that Buggy had been shot at the club. Superintendent Butler learnt through an informant that it was definitely Buggy that had been shot at the club. This was an informant of Nipper Reed who supplied the information. Reed at that time was trying to build a case against the Craves, who were thought to have been muscling in on London clubland. Buggy was on Reed's radar as being an associate of the Craze, and Buggy had been making a nuisance of himself in a number of clubs. However, Reed did not want anything that was going to interfere with his investigation into the Cray Gang, and that would all be arrested within the year. Newspaper reports began to report rumours saying that Buggy had been released from prison in December 1966 after being imprisoned after a shooting at the Pagill Club. He was known as Scotch Jack and was thought to have been shot after £30,000 had gone missing from the Great Train robbery in 1963. Although this was almost certainly false information to throw the police off the real cause, which was the protection rackets of the clubs. 
Other rumours put out that Buggy was had gambling debts. At this time, almost all arguments about London criminals were supposed to be as a result of the Great Train Robbery, arguing over the proceeds that hadn't been recovered. Other rumours about Buggy said that he'd been warned that unless he settled gambling debts of between twenty and £30,000, he would be shot. Another rumour was that it was a mafia-based killing organised by Albert Dimes. Dimes was associated with the American Mafia, who had been attracted by the money made at London gaming clubs and they had been approached by London gangland. Though this isn't really considered a viable scenario. Dimes was now a bookmaker, and although he was almost certainly involved in other enterprises, uh, Dimes had been an associate of the Richardson gang, and he would have worked against the Cray gang, even after Richardson's had been jailed for life. Dimes didn't like the, the Crays. Dimes was a close friend of Franny Daniels, but he was more of a personality than a gang leader. It's difficult to know who would have been working with or against Buggy at the time, as he was a hired muscle. He was known as a chiv merchant, quick to attack somebody with a knife. Buggy had worked with Benny Hill, Billy Hill in the past. It was said that Buggy had been working in the clubs for protection uh, to be given by the Crane Gang. It was not all certain at this point, but all the evidence points towards this. Hill was no longer active in London, and it was thought that since the Richardson gang had been sent to jail in April 1967, just a month before Buggy was killed, it was more, most probable that Buggy was acting for the craze and trying to muscle in on Mayflower Gambling Clubs. May, Mayfair Gambling Clubs. There was a huge power vacuum in London after the Richardson gang was sent down. Buggy, a hired thug, would have been in demand to shake things up. The Crays were known to have been interested in businesses in the West End, and even though their gang was chaotic, they were still feared and influential at that time. They had visited America and New York to research the new business opportunities. Although the trip was not thought to have been that successful, when the Crays returned to London, they started demanding money from London gambling clubs with renewed vigour. It's interesting that the police detective Nipper Reed was given the information by his informant that Buggy had been killed. Buggy being shot would have sent a message to the Crays, stay out of central London. Nipper Reed, who was determined to get the Crays in jail, wanted nothing to spook them and may have played down what he knew about events around Buggy and other events in order to take the Crays down at a later time. The Crays were not popular with much of London gangland, it was known that they wanted a muscle-in on London club land, and it was thought that Billy Hill was feeding back information about businesses right for protection and possible robbery targets. The craze were predatory, looking for the chance to exploit. They were providing protection for the newly opened betting shops. They were involved in the business of one-armed bandits or slot machines. The craze became to be hated because they did not tolerate any disloyalty. A lot of people got striped by the Cray Gang. They ignored the fact that Jack the Spot and Billy Hill, the previous overseers of London gangland, their power came from their ability to avoid violence, but the Craves thrived on conf confrontation. On the 30th of May 1967, a red MG sports car, 7892 KP, that belonged to Buggy and that had been used to drive to the club on the 12th of May was found abandoned near a canal at Maida Vale. The car had been wiped clean of fingerprints. It was later shown that the car had received a parking ticket late in the afternoon of the 12th of May. 
police divers searched the canal. The 31st of May 1967, a statement was made from Anne Phillips. Her maiden name was Knight, born 1941. She said how she was married to Kenneth Phillips, but she left him to move in with Jack Buggy on the 31st of December 1966. At the time, Buggy had a share in a betting shop with Tommy Lincoln. He went to the shop, which she described as somewhere in London, when racing finished. When racing finished, he would go to the Elm Club at 145 Mount Street, and she said that Jackie's main friends were Pinky Lewis and Lenny Field. Anne said that their life was happy. The only friction was with a man called Wagsy, who lived in Surbiton, a 45 Lovelace Road, Lovelace Gardens. Jackie said that Wagsy had cheated him and others out of a large sum of money. On Thursday the 11th of May, Jackie had a phone call from Pinky Lewis. She could tell by the sound of his voice that something was wrong. He said that a bomb had gone off. Jackie said he would go at once, but Pinky said there was no need. The law were already there. Jackie had asked him to ring back in an hour if there was any trouble. There was no other phone calls that night, and it was the next morning when Jackie left the flat at 10 o'clock. He said he was going to go up to the club to see what trouble, what the trouble was and to collect money that he was owed by Morris Blundell. When Buggy left the flat, he arranged to meet Anne in Kingston between 1 and 1.30pm later that day. He had only just gone when there was a telephone call from Pinky asking if Jackie had gone to the club. When Anne got to Kingston Market, she got there at 20 to 2, she had arranged to meet Jackie at her mother's fruit stall in Kingston Market, but he wasn't there. She telephoned the club at half past three and spoke to Punch to ask if Jackie was there. He said that as he had just arrived, he couldn't say who was at the club. Anne phoned the club several times and spoke to people there and asked if Jackie was there or if he had been in. And nobody said that they'd seen him. On the same evening that Jackie didn't come back, she telephoned Tommy Lincoln. No said that he saw him briefly at the club the day beforehand and they left just before he said he was leaving. There were... Oh, Tommy said that um, at the club at the time there were only six people there. Wagsy, two Australians, a guy called Albert Dimes, Franny Daniels and another fellow who was a stranger in the club who was later identified as Ned Bridges. This was apart from the members of the club staff. Anne asked for Tommy for Wagsy's phone number. He told me that he didn't know it, but he would have to get it from Pinky. A couple of days later, on the Saturday or the Sunday, she got a telephone from Wagsy. It was in the morning when she was in the flat. He said that he understood that, he, that she was asking people for his telephone number and he wanted to know what it was all about. She told Wagsy that Jackie had been missing for a couple of days and that she understood that Wagsy was one of the people at the club when Jackie was there. Wagsy said that he had seen Jackie leave the club on his own about half past twelve. She had also said that she had heard from somewhere that the carpets in the club had been changed since Jackie disappeared. Anne continued in her statement saying that Buggy used to keep a safe deposit key underneath the ashtray in his MG car although she didn't know where the safe deposit was located. She said she'd also seen documents relating to the purchase of two houses in an envelope delivered by Lenny Field, and some bank-paying in-books in the name of J. E. Weston. 
She also said that there was a sum of money, about £30,000, that Jackie said he would have to pay back and he was being pressurised about. On the 5th of June 1967, two off-duty policemen were mackerel fishing in Seaford Bay, East Sussex. They were in a boat whilst they were mackerel fishing. They found the tied body of a man floating in the sea. They towed it back to shore. Police Constable David Goldsmith and Fred Taylor of the East Sussex Constabulary at Seaford were fishing about a mile and a half from shore when they sighted what they thought was a shoal of mackerel. It was Buggy's corpse. The corpse was taken to the Royal Sussex County Hospital in Brighton where the Home Office pathologist, Dr Francis Camp, said that the body had been in the sea for about a week and the cause of death was two bullets in the head. The body was wrapped in wire and rope handles had been attached for the ease of carrying. The following day, a crime conference was held at police headquarters in Lewis in Sussex, where it was revealed that the body had been identified as Scotch Jack, James, John James Buggy, identified by scars and a tissue. The inquest for Buggy was opened and adjourned on the 7th of June 1967. It was concluded in the October of 1967. The coroner was told that Buggy was wearing the same clothes as he was last seen, suggesting that the anonymous phone calls that the police had been receiving were possibly correct in the fact that Buggy was killed at the club. The rumour was still that Buggy had been killed over £30,000 missing from the great train robbery. Arthur Butler, the superintendent from the Metropolitan Police, was saying that there was nothing to prove that Buggy was murdered in Seaford or on the south coast, as tides and currents could carry bodies long distances. Butler then gave some rather unusual comments quoting the Gospel of St Matthews. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, suggesting that he was not unduly concerned over Buggy's death in that it brought it upon himself. It was also strange the comments made about the body being in the sea. It was as if Butler was trying to throw the murderers off what the police were thinking. Camp's report said that the body was clothed in a black polo neck jumper, grey trousers and brown shoes, and was bound with heavy wire from head to foot. The tattoo was a cross hands over a heart on the right forearm. The body had been shot several times in the head and the body by .22 bullets. The body had died about three weeks previously. There was also a rib fracture and bruising, which had occurred before death. Four bullets were recovered from the body. On June the 6th, the body was identified by Anne Phillips by the tattoo on the right arm. Buggy's driving licence was still in the pocket of his trousers. Both of his hands were severed from the body and taken to the fingerprint department where they were identified as the hands of John Buggy. On the 7th of June, the inquest at Haywards Heath was adjourned until the 10th of October when a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown was given. The 7th of June, at the inquest at Haywards Heath, Anne Phillips was living at 2 Pembury Court, Ewell Road, Tolworth, Surbiton. She identified items of Buggy's clothing, saying that he was particular about what he wore. He was a sharp dresser. She also identified a gold wristwatch and gold strap that he was wearing. At the inquest, police had told how on the 12th of May, after the explosion, police went to Mount Street Club, where it was business as usual, despite the sodden carpets and the water leak. Staff had cleared up and members came to play cards and wait for the horse racing to start that evening. Buggy was seen to enter by several members at about 
11am and was drinking tea. The police thought that many of the witnesses seemed vague about who was at the club at the time. It was later ascertained by the police that the following people were present. Francis Daniels, a.k.a. Franny the Spaniel. Charles Whitnell, a.k.a. Wagsy or Waggy. Morris Blundell. Abraham Lewis, a.k.a. Little Elf. David Harris, a.k.a. Punch. Philip Lewis, a.k.a. Pinky. Thomas Lincoln, Albert Dimes, Ned Bridges, John Buggy, Betty Lill, Eleanor Angel, a.k.a. Nelly, and later information given to the police about more names of people that were thought to have been at the club in, uh, were Joe Baker, Bimbo Smith, Pat Burns, Ash, Freddie Tomsett, his brother George, Alfie Haynes, Matty. So there were probably about 20 people in the club when Buggy was thought to have been shot. Dimes, who was the well-known West End gangster, denied he was at the club and refused to make a statement. Baker, Smith and Haynes all denied being at the club on the 12th of May because they did not want to be implicated in the murder. They were all friends with Franny Daniels. The police were convinced that they were present, but again there was a wall of silence. Sometime after noon on the 12th of May, club members were suddenly told they had to leave while playing cards and the club was suddenly closed. Dimes left for the USA shortly afterwards. In addition, a new carpet was hurriedly laid and new curtains were put up in the games room at a cost of over £200 when the club was reportedly running at a loss. Well, this is probably for tax purposes. Some weeks after the body was found, the club closed down and the recently purchased carpets and curtains were given away. Statements that were taken from the club uh, from staff at the club were non-committal and at variance with each other to the extent that the police were convinced they were lying in order to cover up the fact that Bug Buggy was murdered at the club. As the management had all left on holiday somewhere, Elfie Lewis was supposed to be left to run the club. He was questioned at length and wrote a statement to which the police were considered to bore little relation to the truth. Elfie said he arrived at the club at about 9.45. Some of the staff were already there and cleaning up the mess from the explosion the night beforehand. At 11.30 he saw Buggy at the club. He ordered a couple of teas, and while waiting for them he discussed the explosion from the previous night, examining the damaged radiator. Alfie said he did not see Buggy after this, and assumed he had left the club. At that time he said Daniels, Whitnell and a couple of Australians, Pinky Lewis and a couple of others, were at the club. Then at lunchtime he said everybody just left, Betty Lill tidied up and left at 4.30 and he stayed until about 8.30 when he locked up the club. Saturday the 13th of May 1967. The club opened as usual. Daniels and Whitnell were both present but that evening Daniels said he had to go away for a few days and Elf was told to run the club as usual. That was the day the carpet was quickly fitted and the new heavy curtains. Elf thought that Nellie the cleaner had been on holiday on the 12th of May other witnesses questioned by the police said that Daniels and Whitnell were definitely not at the club on the evening of the 13th of May. The police thought it very suspicious that Alfie, who was a club secretary and responsible for membership, was unable to name the people that were at the club on the 12th of May, and they should uh, anyway have signed the visitors' book if they were guests. The club had closed for good by the end of May 1967. When the police questioned Blundell, who was at the club on the 12th of May, he said that he was only at the club for a few minutes to pay winnings to horse racing 
uh, a horse racing bet to buggy of £130. He returned to the club later that afternoon at about 2.15, but he only saw Lewis, Lil and Daniels there. Blundell and Harris, or Punch, had gone to the Victoria Club that evening. The following day, Blundell decided to quit the job on the grounds of ill health. Ill health. He had been running the horse racing for the past four years at the Mount Street Club. That was a bit surprising to the people that knew him because no one knew that he was of ill health. David Harris, a.k.a. Punch, denied he was at the club on the 12th of May, although others claim he was there, and left the club at 2pm with Daniels and others. Betty Lill, who did the cooking, but said she was the receptionist at the club, had been employed there for 20 years, working between 10.30 and 6.30. Betty spun a story, but the police claimed that they did not believe a word of what she said. Eleanor Angel, a.k.a. Nellie, claimed that she had been on holiday in Darlington on the 12th of May, although witnesses saw her at the club. Police thought that Betty and Nellie had both witnessed Kelly... I beg your pardon... Betty and Nellie had both witnessed Buggy being killed at the club or were in the next room when he was killed, and they were coerced into giving false information. Police thought that the women had helped clear up the bloody murder scene. In 1972, when the case was reopened, Nellie by that time had passed, but they spoke to her brother, John Edward Baker, of Ford Dean Grove, Darlington, County Durham. He told them in May 1967 his older sister... Eleanor Angel, Nellie, came to stay with him and his wife for a holiday. He was unable to recall the exact dates, but his sister told him that she had washed some blood away in the club where she worked. As far as he could remember, it had something to do with a killing in the club, and she helped wash the evidence away. Police later discovered that Nellie uh, left for Darlington on the day after the murder because she had told her friends at the uh, that the club was closing down and she was not sure if she had a job to return to. Her later confirmed that she did in fact leave London on the 13th of May 1967. But as I said, Nellie had died before the case reopened in 1972. It seemed that there were a number of false witness statements that did not agree with each other. It would be tiresome to go into each and say how they were suspect, but the police realised that the people were not being truthful and not telling what they knew. Officers from the Forensic Science Laboratory examined the club premises after the shooting, but could find no evidence that Buggy had been murdered there. The police were looking for Whitnell and Daniels and searched their home addresses. As a result of this, Whitnell was discovered to be the owner of a Shakespeare Super V Skymaster speedboat with a Johnson outboard motor. He also owned an ex-Ministry of Works Land Rover, which he used to tow the boat with. Further inquiries showed that the boat was used from Creston Marina at Newhaven in East Sussex. The boat was known to have been at the marina during April and May 1967. Creston Marina was just really floating pontoons that were so common now. It was the first marina of its kind in the UK, possibly inspired by the floating harbours used for the Normandy landings during World War II. On Sunday the 14th of May 1967, two men were said to have arrived at Cresta Marina in Whitnell's Land Rover, saying they had permission to use his boat. Derek Hodson, who was a slipway attendant at the marina, helped them launch the boat in the rain. 
Hodson said that the men seemed unsure how to handle the boat. Later that day, Hodson helped pull the boat out of the water onto a trailer when they drove away. On the 15th of May, police learnt that the AA breakdown services were called to a Land Rover and boat that had broken down on Christ's Hill Way, Cardiff. There was only one man with a Land Rover, and he gave his name as Harry Riley from London, but it was later confirmed that it was Charles Whitnell. Harry Riley did exist, but he was a friend of Whitnell's, and he was Australian and a member of the Mount Street Club, and he'd also been employed at John Hart's Amusements at Aberavon in Wales. Later the same evening, a car collided with a stationary Land Rover and a boat on a trailer. When the police were called, the driver again gave his name as Harry Riley, but he had no documents to prove this. The police took photographs of the man, which were later identified as Charles Whitnell. The police noticed that a torch fitted to the rear of the trailer as a means of illumination was not working. The man calling himself Riley told police that he was making his way to John Hart's amusements at Miami Beach, Aberavon, near Swansea Bay, where he was going to sell the boat. The man said that his place of business was CNS Garages at 40 Inverness Mews, London W2, which was owned by Peter Davis, who was described as a financier. Later that evening, on the 15th of May, the man calling himself Riley, we know as Whitnall, and John Hart went to a dance at Aberavon, as they were seen there by the police who were also attending the dance. Hart was later interviewed by the police, who said he had not expected Whitnell to turn up with the boat, but arrangements were made for the boat to be repaired at Birmingham. While the boat was being repaired, the body of Buggy was discovered on the 12th of June 1967. A description of the boat was circulated in the press, the person repairing the boat informed the police and it was taken into a forensic lab at the Metropolitan Police Headquarters. Fibers were found that matched those from Buggy's clothing in Whitnell's boat. The press was getting publicity in the press and several people came forward with information. One of these was a schoolboy, Gregory Smith of 13 Stain Road, Seaford, who told the police that on the 12th of May he and a couple of friends were cycling along Tide Mills Road making their way home at about 8pm and because his brakes were faulty he ran into a green Land Rover which was parked in a lay-by near the railway crossing for pedestrians going to the beach. He noticed in the car a car jack with wire wound around it. He also noticed that the vehicle had gone through a pedestrian gate across the railway line to the beach. He noticed that the the wheel marks in the shingle leading down to the seashore. Police showed him a photograph of Whitnell's car and Gregory said it was the same one. By boat it would take about 10 minutes to arrive at Seaford from the Cresta Marina at Newhaven. The police realised that Whitnell could not have driven the Land Rover to the beach near Seaford as he had not left home until about 8pm but police think that someone else could have driven the Land Rover with bodies, Buggy's body to the beach and Whitnell could have met them there later that evening. The journey from Whitnell's house to Newhaven or Seaford would be in about 90 minutes. Having taken the body to the south coast on Friday the 12th of May, it was most likely hidden until the next day when it could be taken out onto the boat. The boat was used both on the Saturday and the Sunday the 13th and 14th of May. It was thought that at the same time the body could have been taken to the beach by the Land Rover, driven to the beach edge, 
in the four-wheel drive vehicle and put on the boat to be dumped at sea. When the boys went there on the 12th of May, they may have seen a dummy run. On Sunday the 14th of June 1967, Franny Daniels arrived with a solicitor at West End Police Station, Central London. He denied all knowledge of Buggy's death, saying he'd gone away because his nerves were bad because he was receiving threatening phone calls. Daniels gave no reason for his club suddenly closing on the 12th of May. He agreed that Wintnell was at the club, but only for a few minutes. He said that Albert Dimes was not at the club. Dimes was interviewed by Superintendent Butler, but denied being at the club and refused to give his movements or make any statement. And, as said, he left for the USA. Mrs. Mienka Koistra was aged 21 in 1967. She was a nanny, a Dutch national, working for Mr. and Mrs. Whitnell in their address at 45 Lovelace, Lovelace Road, Surbiton, during May 1967. On the night of the 12th of May, she said that Mr. and Mrs. Whitnell went out and told her not to answer the door to anyone. Koistra said that she was the only time that she had known them to go out with each other. They went out the house through the back door and went through the garden. After half an hour, they returned and went upstairs for about 15 minutes. Then they left through the front door without coming into the front room to speak with her. Someone came back at midnight. Mr. Whitnell went away the next day and Mrs. Whitnell seemed very upset. Her husband's parents came to stay at the house with her. Coistra never saw him again, and she left the employ of the family during June 1967 and never saw any of the family after that. Whitnell had told police that he had returned to the home on the 12th of May, but he had not gone out again that day, which of course did not agree with Coistra's statement. The police had their suspicions, but given that no one was prepared to give them information, not much progress was being made on the case. Whitnell by that time had fled the country. In June 1968, so a year after the shooting, the police discovered that Harry Riley, the Australian whose name was given by Whitnell, was serving a prison sentence in Toronto Prison, Canada. So Superintendent Butler and Constable Price went on a trip to Canada in order to question him, hoping for a breakthrough in the case. Riley said that he'd been with Whitnell from May 1967 to March 1968. They'd been travelling in Europe and then to Canada. He said that Whitnell was not hiding from the police, but from gangsters who had threatened his life. He did not know Whitnell's whereabouts at that present time. He said that on the 12th of May 1967, he was employed at Hearts Amusement Park at Miami Beach in Aber Avon in Wales. And on that very day, the 12th of May, he had been injured in a fairground accident and had to attend the local hospital for treatment. As a result of Riley's information, the police managed to track down Whitnell, who was living in Austria. He was interviewed on the 25th of July 1968 after arranging a meeting through his solicitors in Vienna, in Austria. Whitnell's story was that on the 12th of May 1967, he had a luncheon appointment with Peter Davis. He was the financier. And on the way, he called into Mount Street Club to see his uncle and Mr. Uh, Mr. Daniels, Franny Daniels. This would have been around noon. He said he spoke to Buggy, who was there, and had a cup of tea with him. 
Whitnell left the club and met with Davis at 12.30 and then left at 4.30 for his house in Surbiton. The next day, Saturday the 13th of May, Whitnell claimed he went to his sister's house at Hersham in Surrey, where he had some business. Then he claimed he took his Land Rover, which was kept at his sister's house, and drove to Newhaven, arriving there about 4.30. He claimed that Buggy had been using his boat on several occasions, and saying that the starter was faulty, and he wanted to test it for himself. He was blaming Buggy for damaging his boat. Whitnell then claimed that he put the boat in the water and tested it, and then put the boat on the trailer and took it back to his sister's house, and then drove back to his house. Then at about 10pm he received threatening phone calls and was so afraid that he went to go and stay at a house that he was renting in Esher in Surrey. He went back home the next day for Sunday lunch with his family but received more phone calls so he phoned for his parents to come and stay at his house. He said that he had to leave as if he stayed he feared for the children's safety. The next day he went to Port Talbot on Swansea Bay. On the way there a tyre blew and he called the AA. He had no membership so he pretended to be his friend Harry Riley. After his tyre was repaired the car ran into the back of the trader carrying the boat near Bridge End. The police arrived and he gave the name Harry Riley again. The boat and trader were taken to a garage and then he went on to Port Talbot. The following morning he went to the garage with Harry Riley and another man who he did not name. They took the trailer and the boat to Birmingham to get it repaired. Whitnell said that after spending a night in Birmingham, he and Riley returned to London to a house at Westmont Road, Esher in Surrey. When visiting a public house there, a Jaguar car tried to run them down and then men chased them with firearms. As a result of this alleged attack, they decided to leave the country, first to Europe and then to Canada. Whitnell said that he had learnt from the newspapers that police wanted to speak to him, so he then made the necessary arrangements. He said he had no intention of returning to the UK until he knew the results of several court cases, or court trials. The police believed that he and Riley had spent so much time getting their story straight, as both stories, both statements were identical. Shortly after the interview, a warrant was issued for Whitnell's arrest, even though he was living in Austria at the time. Peter Davis was said to be a company director and a wealthy property owner. He was described as a smooth individual and a known associate of gangsters and organised crime. He befriended Buggy whilst he was in prison and he gave him a job when Buggy was released. He was a close friend of Whitnell. Davis was thought to be the financer of projects planned by London gangsters. When questioned by the police, Davis said he couldn't remember what he did on the 12th of May 1967 or the next day. The story now moves to May 1972. There was an article in the News of the World newspaper and this caused the case to be reopened. A woman who was called June Hall Lambic, born 1932, she was living in the Negresca Hotel in Nice in France, southern France. She claimed to have been a witness to the killing of Buggy. The investigation was reopened. Detective Superintendent Hawley interviewed her in Nice. She explained how she went to the Mount Street Club on the 12th of May to meet a friend. She had been to the club before, and although she didn't know names, she recognised faces. She saw Buggy, Whitnell, Daniels and Albert Dimes. Suddenly an argument broke out, 
in Whitnell pulled out a revolver and shot Buggy four or five times. There was a general panic in the club. Buggy's body was taken out of the club, rolled up in carpet. The police showed Lambic photographs and she vaguely identified several people, including Harry Riley, who had been proved to have been hospital, in hospital at Port Talbot on that day, so could not have been there. In July, 10th of July 1972, Lambic came, came to London and was questioned again at New Scotland Yard. She now changed her statement saying that Buggy wasn't shot, he was just beaten up. Several witnesses said that Lambic had not been at the club on the 12th of May 1967. The person that she was supposed to have been meeting at the club, who she was with, living with at that time in Manchester, Aga, was a gambling friend of Daniel's, who often went to the club. Aga, who had made a statement on the 23rd of July uh, 1967, made another one on the 3rd of May 1973. He said that he would often visit the club when he was in London, and Lambic would come and pick him up in the car from the club. She invariably got to know people as she waited for him. Aga claimed that uh, he was not at the club on the 12th of May 1967. Other witnesses said that Lambic was not at the club on that day that she claimed, and they said that she only said that she was so she could get newspaper money payouts. The police realised that Lambic's statements were worthless, but they decided to keep the case open. The police were then contacted by a prisoner saying he wanted to speak with them. He had information on the buggy case. This was September 1972, when Australian Douglas Charles Stevenson, also known as Donald or Dougie Wardle, he was known at Wardle at the Mount Street Club, told his story. <clears throat> so Wardle was at the time serving a nine-year sentence. He had told the police that he had been in the club on the 12th of May 1967. He said he was a regular at the club, as were a number of Australians, who were known criminals. He described the club's layout and knew most of the members by name. He knew Buggy very well. Woodle said that he went to the club on the 12th of May 1967 between 10.30 and 11am. Buggy was there discussing a radiator with Daniels. Albert Dimes was also present. Buggy shouted out for a coffee and an elderly woman called Nenny bought coffee uh, for those in the club. Daniels was making derogatory remarks, swearing about someone. Dimes gestured with his hands to indicate that it wasn't important, but Buggy said, I'll speak to the CUNT personally. While this conversation was taking place, a man called Bimbo Smith, born 1913, came into the room with another man, Joe Baker, born 1910. At this stage, Daniels told Buggy, Wait here. Either Dimes or Buggy said, Well, it couldn't have happened that way. Buggy said to Dimes, He ought to know that he didn't do anything like that without letting me know. All this indicating that Buggy was giving protection to the club, but something had gone wrong. Wardle said that Daniels left the club for about 15 minutes, then returned, seeming agitated. Wardle said he was talking with Smith and Baker, and others came into the room. He sensed something was wrong. By this time, Daniels had returned to the room and was on the telephone again. Wardle heard him say, The fucking C-U-N-T told me a different story altogether. Buggy said, Let me speak to him. But Daniels put the phone down. Buggy said, I don't think he would have spoken to me like that. 
Daniels asked then people to uh, in the room, would you all mind waiting in the other room for a couple of minutes? As people were leaving, Daniels said to Wardle, you can stay. But Wardle said, no, it's okay, I'll go to the snack room. Everyone, with the exception of Daniels, Dimes and Buggy, left the room and went into the next room, which was used as the dining room. Wardle said that Betty served him coffee. Wardle said, what's going on? And she replied, I don't know, Dougie. Morris Blundell came into the club and went into the games room. Daniel's voice was heard to say, What the hell are you going to do? First, close the door and get on that phone. There were some comings and goings during the next 20 minutes. The club started filling up. There were about 14 people now in the dining room. Then Whitnell came in the club. Wardle said, Hi, Waggy, to him, but he was ignored as Whitnell marched into the games room with another man who we later found out was Ned Bridges. Wardle said that other people had come into the club during this time, Alfie Haynes, Joe Baker, Pat Burns, Teddy Tomset and a few others, and some whose names he did not know. They all stayed in the dining room part of the club. Morris Blundell said that nobody was allowed into the main room. The main club room had not been used for almost an hour. Wardle opened the door and said, See you in a minute, Franny, who replied, Not now, I'll see you later. Wardle said that he saw sitting on the left of the table Buggy, who was looking rather ashen-faced, on his right, Albert Dimes, standing on the left, Franny Daniels, and at the end of the table, standing, Charles Wintnell and the man he went in with, Ned Bridges. Morris Blundell was sitting at the telephone, at a desk with it on the telephone. Wardle said he sensed an atmosphere, a tenseness in the room. Wardle decided to leave the club at this point, about 1pm. Wardle asked his friend, Burns, what's going on? He replied he thought they were having an argument about a radiator. Shortly afterwards they heard shots, not loud but distinctive. Bimbo Smith said, what the fucking hell is that? Wardle replied, it could be another radiator that's burst. He said that he knew it wasn't the radiator. He didn't say it as a joke but more to indicate he didn't want to know it, or he didn't want to be involved. Daniels then came into the snack room and announced the club was closing. He said there will be no business this afternoon as we are clearing up. Betty Lill then walked to Daniels who was saying something to Wardle. <coughs> oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Betty Lill came to walk to Daniels and they were saying something. Wardle couldn't understand what it was. But then she became very excited, saying, No, no, no. Daniels then slapped her at face. The next day, Betty Lill allegedly became ill, and she never returned to the club again. Wardle left the club with Baker and Burns, and another Australian called McElroy. They went to the nearby public house, and they were joined by three others from the club, Smith, Haynes and Freddie Tomset. They discussed what had just happened. They came to the conclusion that Franny would not knock someone off at the club, he was too sensible for that. It must have been a frightener. Wardle had seen a revolver in the revolver in the waistband of Franny Daniels' trousers when he leant over a desk, and others had seen it too. The following night, Wardle, Bimbo Smith and Freddie Tomsett were at the steakhouse talking about the events of the previous day. Smith said they would have a hard time finishing off Buggy, and at that moment Wardle said he knew Buggy had been shot. Wardle then said he heard a rumour that he was being blamed for Buggy's death. He was afraid of being made the scapegoat. Wardle confronted Daniels about the rumours. 
He told Wardle he had nothing to be worried about and he would not be interfered with. Wardle was indicating that he was being set up as the fall guy for the shooting and didn't want Buggy's friends coming after him. Wardle said he was worried about the shooting because he was a wanted man himself and he left for Manchester for a few days to get away from the area. When Wardle returned after a couple of weeks, he met Freddie Daniels in a club in Germain Street, which was being run by Sammy Gardner. Wardle said that everybody that used to use the Mount Street Club were now using this club, where Daniels and Blundell were organising the bets, just as they'd done at the Mount Street Club. Only Burns and McElroy did not use the club anymore, as they had both returned to Australia. There was a day when Daniels and Wardle went to a nearby public house, the Checkers at Duke Street, and had a talk. They talked about all the custom that Wardle had brought to the Mount Street Club. Then they started to talk about the murder of Buggy. Wardle said he was upset, and he understood that some people thought that he, Wardle, had done it. Wardle told Daniels he had enough on his plate and he could do without the extra trouble. Wardle said that the law was after him, and he had to leave his last two addresses, and it was costing him a lot of money. Daniels told Wardle that he trusted him and did not want to bring him any extra trouble. Franny Daniels then said it cost him a lot of money also, and at that present moment he would cut his right arm off for what he had done, saying that it was done more in temper more than anything else. Wardle said he was in no doubt he was referring to Daniels admitting to shooting Buggy. Daniels continued that it had cost a lot of money to get things quietened down. Then there were talking in the pub for well over an hour. Daniels told Wardle to tell his Australian friends he had sorted things out and there would be no further bother or aggravation from the law. Wardle said he regularly saw Daniels after this time, but he never again mentioned the shooting. Wardle concluded the interview with the police by saying he had learnt or gleaned that Buggy had been tied up with wire, rolled in a carpet and carried out of the club later that evening by Daniels, Whitnell and Alfie Lewis. And later the body was dumped from a boat. Wardle told all this to police on the 25th of September 1973 at Lewis Prison where he was due to finish his sentence later in 1973. Franny Daniels, a.k.a. Franny the Spaniel, had disappeared from London during March 1973, when the media began publishing stories of the police reopening the investigation into the buggy murder. However, a number of rumours suggested that Daniels was considering surrendering to the police to admit his part of the affair. In December 1973, his wife Sheila Daniels also disappeared from their flat, and the rumour was that she went to go and join her husband. Apart from the buggy murder, police wanted to question Daniels about stolen jewellery and other matters. The police thought that Wardle's statement had a ring of truth about it, and it was backed by several witnesses that were there. The police realised that the body would have to be removed from the club quickly as soon as possible, as there would be fears that somebody would inform the police of the shooting, which is what happened. The police did in fact raid the Mount Street Club within a week of the shooting, although they did not find anything illegal. When Wardle first told his story to the police officers, this was on the Isle of Wight at Parkhurst Prison. Since, 1968, since a 1968 blackmail charge, Wardle said that he did not want to speak with officers from the Metropolitan Police, as he knew that they were corrupt. He knew they had been paid off for the Mount Street Club and the Germain Street Club. Thompson had 
not been interviewed by the police until the 3rd of May 1973, when he went to Paddington Police Station with his solicitor. He refused to make a written statement. He said he went to Mount Street on the 12th of May at 2pm. He met Wardle outside, who said the club was closed as there had been some trouble there. Alfred James Haynes was serving a 10-year sentence when he was questioned by the police during April 1973 and told a similar story to Tomset that he had arrived after the club had closed down on the 12th of May. Bimbo Smith, Duncan James Smith, and Fred Baker refused to make statements. So six years after the police still faced a wall of silence from those that may have known what happened. Patricia Jane Godsell was born in 1942. She was a beautician and lived with Wardle until the end of 1967. She remembers dropping Wardle off at the club at noon, or about noon, on the 12th of May 1967. It's a bit later than what Wardle claimed. She was supposed to meet with him at 2pm to go to the cinema, but he did not arrive as planned. She telephoned the club several times, but there was either no reply or the phone was engaged. She got the telephone exchange to check the line and was told there was no problem. She did not see Wardle for a couple of days when he returned to their flat after suffering from heavy drinking. been drinking for two days. When she questioned him, he replied he'd been, there'd been a bomb placed at the radiator at the club and Buggy had been blamed for it. Godsell thought that he was lying and there'd be nothing in the news and she thought that Wardle had been with another woman and was trying to make an excuse. A few days later, after Buggy's body was found, Wardle told her that the police were looking for him, mistaking him for Harry Riley, another Australian who had a similar build and appearance to him. Wardle told her he had been playing cards with Tomset in the club when Buggy was shot. Police made further inquiries and on the 13th of April 1973, police received a message from HM Prison Layhill that a prisoner, Charles Edmund Neville Black, born 1928, wanted to be interviewed as he had information about the buggy murder. Black told the police that in 1966 he went into partnership with Ned Bridges. This was the man that called Ned that had been in the club when Buggy was shot. The business was Postal Bingo and the business operated from Cambridge House at Plumstead High Street. In February the business failed through lack of funds, although Black remained friendly with Bridges and they visited the Mount Street Club on several occasions. Bridges, in conversation with Black, mentioned the Cray twins, the notorious London gangsters that were trying to form an association with Daniels and Dimes and Bridges and one or two others. The Crays had poss and possibly others were wanting to move into the lucrative club business. Mount Street was in Mayfair and so would have been a prestigious club to operate from. Bridges said shortly before Buggy's death, Daniels was leaving the club on one evening and was attacked by a couple of men who robbed him of money and cheques. One of the cheques was later traced to the account of a woman who was a friend of Buggy's. Daniels had also received threatening phone calls. Bridges thought the buggy was behind the trouble and he wanted to become a partner in the club. Buggy was said to have been behind the radiator explosion. It was decided that Buggy would be invited to the club for a showdown. There was no intention to kill him in the club, but after an argument between Daniels and Buggy, Daniels shot him. 
The body was wrapped in a carpet, bound with wire and placed in a laundry basket. The body would be stored somewhere while the carpet and laundry basket would be destroyed. The carpet was burned in the presence of Black at the rear of Cambridge House in Plumstead, Plumstead High Street. The body was then weighted and dumped from a motorboat into the sea. Black said that it was Bridges who was in charge of the club now, not Elf Lewis, whilst Daniels was away. When Franny Daniels returned to London, he opened a club at Germain Street with a man called Sammy Gardner. Black decide, uh, described the gun and the bullets which matched those found on Buggy, or found in Buggy, during the post-mortem. On the 30th of April, Sammy Gardner was interviewed by the police. He'd been a member of the Mount Street Club was a friend and former business partner of Francis Daniels, Franny Daniels. He said that he was not present at the club, but was aware of what had happened. Buggy had been asking Daniels to make him a partner at Mount Street Club. When Daniels refused, the explosion happened. On the day of the murder, Daniels, Albert Dimes and Whitnell and others, all th thought to be Alf Lewis and Morris Blundell, were at the club with Buggy. The intention was to frighten him, but Daniels shot him in a temper and Whitnell was made responsible for getting rid of the body. There had been a lot of people in the club when Buggy was shot, including Bimbo Smith, Joe Baker and some Australians. They told Gardner they'd all heard the shots. Gardner said he didn't think Bridges was in the club at the time of the shooting, but he helped clear up afterwards, and then he ran and ran the club for a short period before it closed for good. The police felt confident they now understood what had happened. Daniels had, Daniels had fired the shots, and Whitnell had disposed of the body. The police thought it more likely that Daniels had been responsible for exploding the radiator. He had blown up his own radiator in the club so he could blame Buggy and others um, so they'd get people on side. Daniels wanted to show a strength with Buggy. The police thought that Buggy had been at home the evening the uh, radiator had exploded and he was phoned by Pinky Smith to inform him of the damage which did not cause serious damage, just a slight inconvenience. The police thought that Dimes had been called to the showdown with Buggy by Daniels, as Dime was a notorious character and not a stranger to violence, and if he had been, if it had been arranged with Dimes beforehand that Buggy had uh, blown up the radiator, he would be good backup and a show of strength for Daniels. After the shooting, Daniels closed the club for the rest of the day, a Friday, giving no good reason for doing so. It was obvious that something was out of the ordinary had happened. The principal characters, Daniel Dimes and Whitnell, all left the country. And when the body of Buggy was recovered, fibres of his clothing were found in Whitnell's boat. Whitnell tried to say that Buggy would often use his boat, but Anne Phillips, Buggy's partner, said this was not true. Buggy and Whitnell were not friends, and if he had used the boat, he would have told her. On the 7th of March 1974, Franny Daniels was arrested at the White House Hotel in Albany Street, London. He was claiming no fixed abode and unemployed. He was 63 years of age. He was charged with the murder of John James Buggy. Daniels admitted being present when Buggy was shot and allowed the body to be removed but said nothing else. Daniels was not a well man. He had a brain hemorrhage in September 1970. He'd been in the prison hospital since his arrest. Daniels had been living in France. He'd fled there during the summer 1973 when the buggy case was reopened. He let it be known to police that he would voluntarily return to face any charges that would be brought against him. He'd admit the shooting 
attempting to present some defence, such as accident or uh, self-defence. Daniels was anxious that Whitnell, who was his nephew, would not be blamed. Daniels was 63, unfit, and wished to get the matter disposed of so his wife and him could live without fear in their luxury flat in London. Wardle was considered a poor witness by the police, had a very bad record, and was currently serving nine years for blackmail. Any jury would have been warned against acting on his uncooperated evidence. Added to this, he, was waited, he had waited five years before telling his story. However, the police thought that as he was nearing the end of his sentence, he was due to be released in August 1974, he appeared to have no ulterior motive, possibly also because he was one time going to be blamed for the murder himself. There was also, of course, the wall of silence, so um, Wardle was the only real witness against Daniels. The police wanted to bring a case against Whitnell also, but he was living in America. They thought they'd take action against Alf Lewis. The, course, the case went to court in 1974, but as the main witness against Daniel and Lewis was Wardle, his evidence could not be believed. Both were acquitted. Franny Daniels went to live in New York after the trial, and he, although he returned to London, and he died there in 1992, aged 82. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to uh, Alf Lewis. Well, that is the end of today's podcast. A bit of a ramble, went on a bit, I must admit. Um, Taken in one take, there's been no editing, so uh, please be aware of that fact. Thank you for Damselfly for providing the background music. I've had a few complaints about the background music being too noisy, so I've I've, um, lowered, lowered the background music. And so I'd like to thank you all for listening or downloading. Until next time, I will say goodbye. <laughs>